This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. February marks one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with the war showing no signs of abating. As Americans, we've become accustomed to grim news reports and shocking images of the devastation in Ukraine. Less familiar, maybe, is the country's rich, complicated history and the story of how throughout the 20th century, Ukrainians made new lives for themselves in the United States. On this episode, Associate Editor Griffin Olenek talks with author Megan Buskey, whose new book, Ukraine is Not Dead Yet, shows another less commonly known side of the country. Their conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Griffin. It's uh, good to see you here today. Hey, Dominic. Great to be here. So you got to speak with Megan Buskey, and why don't you tell us a little bit what you guys talked about? Megan lives in Brooklyn, so she was actually able to come up and join us in person to record the conversation. She's originally from the suburbs of Cleveland, where there's a sizable Ukrainian diaspora community. The catalyst for her book is her relationship with her grandmother, Anna, who grew up in western Ukraine in the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains, but ended up being sent into internal exile in Siberia, where she worked in the coal mines for more than 20 years. Her grandmother obtained a rare exit visa to live with her two daughters, including Megan's mother, in the United States in the 1960s. When her grandmother died in 2013, Megan undertook her project, which is a memoir, but unfolds more like a detective novel. So Megan spent many years traveling back and forth between Ukraine and here, scouring archives, interviewing residents, and tracking down leads, all in an effort to understand what it was that made her grandmother who she was. It also draws a portrait of a different kind of Ukraine, one that we're not so used to seeing in the news. It's a Ukraine of intense poverty, but also great beauty and moral valor. So it's one I think listeners will be interested in hearing about. Yeah, thanks, Griffin. I'm looking forward to hearing this conversation. Thank you. Megan Buskey, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So it's now been nearly one year since the date of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You've followed the war at a visceral level. What have you observed and what have you come to realize about the power of Ukrainian patriotism? I actually wasn't very surprised by the reaction in Ukraine because I've been spending a lot of time there for almost 20 years, know the country very well. And it's always been apparent to me that Ukraine is a place with a very deep history, a very rich culture, a place where people are very proud and engaged in their own narrative of their country. And so it's not surprising to me that people feel such like abundant love for Ukraine and wanting to defend it. And I also think too, there was a sense of sort of omnipotent threat in Ukraine due to Russia's previous invasion in 2014. So I think people, while it was certainly a surprise, I think for virtually everyone, it was also something that they were prepared for. And they had already done that sort of mental exercise of what would, it, what would I do if Russia were to attack again, for example. What was a surprise was the world's reaction to what was happening and seeing how much the world supported Ukraine and how much interest there has been in continuing to follow the story. As someone with strong connection to the country, that's been really meaningful to me. In terms of thinking about or observing what's happening in Ukraine now, I haven't been back. I was there very briefly in the fall for a few days. So most of my observations have been from a distance and, you know, just collectively watching what's happening in the lives of friends and family. And I would say there's sort of two things to keep in mind. One, I think there's, and this is something that I think there has been a lot of attention to, which is that Ukrainians are very committed to continuing to live and being 
resilient in the face of this huge tragedy, this huge catastrophe of this war. But at the same time, I think there's also a lot of suffering that's happening, and it's both at once. So, you know, there's like a meme in Ukrainian culture now that President Zelensky sent off like, a, I don't know, six weeks ago of this idea that we will, Ukrainians will live without light, they'll live without heat, they'll live without electricity. As long as it's without Russia, everything's mm. fine. We're right. fine. <laughs> so there's, there's that element in the culture. But mm. then on the other hand, that is in tension with this idea that you knows someone that's serving in the army. Everyone likely knows someone who's been killed. Everyone knows someone who's had their homes destroyed or had been in captivity or is abroad or whatever. So that's just, it's a huge mental weight too at the same time. So so you mentioned your personal connections to Ukraine and you are, as we'll get into, Ukrainian-American. You have family there as well as here. And in the book, you point out that Ukraine means borderland in the Ukrainian and Russian languages. And you write that it's common to speak about the country as a kind of buffer between spheres of political, cultural, and religious influence. But for you, Ukraine is also a psychic and personal borderland. Could you explain what that means and how you arrived at that understanding? So when I first started going to Ukraine, I was 19 or 20. I was in college. I hadn't really spent time outside of the United States. And so going to Ukraine, which was at that time, you know, a pretty different culture, was a big undertaking for me. And when I went, this was in the early 2000s, Ukraine was in a different place than it is now. It was just a decade out of communism. And there were I think a number of issues that were more kind of prominent and challenging than there are now. So the poverty was still a lot of poverty in Ukraine, but it was much more widespread. There would be young women my age. I would I remember that they would often just have two or three outfits that they would rotate through. And I remember just that that struck me that things like water were not as widely available. In Lviv, there was just water six hours a day, three hours in the morning, three hours in the evening. And I remember too, one thing that shook me up quite a bit was I saw at least two car accidents on the road between Lviv and Kiev, where there were cars that had been in some sort of terrible accident and there were still bodies in the cars and they're just standing there by the side of the road. So experiencing that country and not having been prepared for the idea that I would be in this place that was that would be so different really helped me understand something very crucial about culture, which is that it's socially constructed and individual to a place. And so I was able to have a sort of external perspective on my own experience of being an American, where before I didn't have that experience, I didn't have that perspective. And that kind of inaugurated, it was something of a break for me on a psychic level. And I think it had some personal implications too, just in terms of what that meant for me coming back from Ukraine, I remember having problems sleeping and at times feeling like I had this sort of rising sense of panic that would come from nowhere. And I I really connected to that sense of understanding that the world was a lot more complicated and difficult in some respects than I had ever understood it to be. Well, I do want to talk about your upbringing in suburban Cleveland. And you begin your narration talking about your grandmother, Anna who is the impetus for this extensive journey of reporting and archival research that you undertook for the book. Tell us about your grandmother and about the relationship you had with her growing up. So my grandmother was a native of Ukraine. So she was from um, a Ukrainian village in Western Ukraine. She was born in 1925. So she was just old enough to be a part of the generation that had their lives sort of totally upended by the war. She endured various terrible things during World War II. She ended up getting 
exiled to Siberia after the war because her brother had been um, fighting with the Ukrainian nationalists against the Soviets. She was in Siberia for 20 years, mostly working in coal mines, and then got the opportunity to come to the United States because her she had relatives that lived here and they sponsored her visa. So she brought her two youngest daughters, one of whom was my mother, to the United States in the late 60s, and they settled in Cleveland, which is where my mother also ended up settling and where I was born. And my grandmother worked in a factory when she came to the United States, and she was able to kind of live the American dream to some extent, which was to get access to a job that didn't require many skills, but still was something that she could do well. And it allowed her to have a measure of security that allowed her to provide some support to her family and led to her prosperity eventually and then the prosperity of her of subsequent generations. And so I grew up in Cleveland. My grandmother was a big part of my life. She was like a third parent in some respects. She lived very close by and she watched me and my younger brothers on a regular basis. And, you know, apart from my grandmother, we grew up in a very American environment. So very suburban kind of Rust Belt, typical mid Midwestern middle class environment. But my grandmother was really our connection to Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian customs, Ukrainian traditions. We celebrated Ukrainian holidays, went to Ukrainian church, all because of her. And so that was always, I think, interesting to me. As or Actually, as a child, it was actually somewhat, I resented it because I, I just wanted to play Nintendo. And instead, I had to put on a dress and go to church or whatever. You know, as I got older, it was something that I became very interested in. And I think, too, my grandmother was also a of mystery, too. I think she, in part because of the foreignness, but also because it was clear that she'd endured some very terrible things in the Soviet Union and Ukraine. And she would do things like when she was talking about her early life, she would break down or she had this kind of obsession about money and food. And that all came out very clearly. And it was very strange for us because we lived in a place that was otherwise so secure and so abundant and in any way that we could imagine. And so I think for me, there was that observing that in her and loving her and seeing that she she was in pain in some respects also just made that, that was very interesting to me. I also do want to say that she was also a very joyful person and she had a lot of friends. So she died about 10 years ago. And I think for me, it was partly a way, it just sort of threw myself into researching all aspects of her life. I'd interviewed her a number of times. So I had some basic information for sure. What I did after she died was very different than what I had been doing before. I think it's very deliberate. It was, I think, in part just a way to stay close to her, to continue to have a relationship with her because I was learning these new things about her, even though she wasn't there. So it was a way to continue that relationship. But I also think it was a way to start to maybe fully broach some things that I, I could sense were very complicated, were likely very complicated, just knowing about the history of that region, to start to to do that in a way without having to fear hurting her or fear harming her. Even in the conversations I did have with her about before she died, it was clear that talking about a lot of these things was very difficult for her. And that she would say sometimes, oh, we spoke and then I couldn't sleep that night because I was sort of taken back to being in Siberia and waiting in this terrible, you know, this really long line trying to get bread for my kids. And so for me, there was a sort of protective instinct of, you know, I wanted to have an understanding, but also on her terms. But after she was gone, that went away. And so the terms became my own. And I wanted to understand this story and all the complexity that I possibly could. Yeah, and you go very deep historically. So you begin your narration in the 19th century in Ukraine in a small village called Staryava near the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. 
What was life like for your relatives there? And how would you characterize their relations with their Polish and Jewish neighbors? So Stary Aba was a small, predominantly Ukrainian village. It was about 1,200 people before World War II, about 900 Ukrainians, 200 Poles and 100 Jews, a smattering of Germans maybe. I would say, generally speaking, it was agricultural and very poor. Those are the things to know about mm-hmm. it. Everyone who lived there was very poor. You know, there was some basic roles that the different ethnicities played in the village. Ukrainians were almost exclusively peasants, so working the land. Poles and Jews also did that. But Poles and Jews also had some responsibilities in other ways in the society. Jews often owned like the the small groceries in the village. They might, I think one of them owned a quarry there. There was a tavern or two that they owned. And then the Poles, I think, too, also had some ownership or capital interests in the village that the Ukrainians really didn't have. So there was some distance between all of these groups. And there was some certainly differences and some tensions, but it wasn't, there was no violence. Of course, that all changed with World War II. There were so many different, I think there were just armies going back and forth in this place. And so there were various different occupying forces, and that had some benefits to some groups at some times, and then certainly some very negative consequences for some groups at others. What ended up happening in the end was that there was what was a multi-ethnic village ended up becoming an exclusively Ukrainian village, and that happened through the killing of the Jews under the Nazi occupation. There was a a ghetto that was created. All of the Jews were put there, certainly probably with the collaboration of some local Ukrainian policemen. So they were all shot and put in a mass grave on the outskirts of the village. And the Poles were likely, I don't know if they were actively deported or if they just left, but there was a kind of ethnic, I wouldn't say cleansing, but there was like some rearrangement, I suppose, Mm -hmm. in which like, Ukrainians that were in Pol- on Polish ter- territory after World War II were returned to Ukraine. Poles that were in Ukrainian territory were sent to Poland. So right now we have like basically a homogenous Ukrainian village. That's the end result. There was a lot of different acts of violence that were perpetrated by the armies and the occupying forces in that region that were undertaken by locals who felt empowered based on whatever occupying force was there. So it's a very complicated history. Well, I want to get into that complicated Mm -hmm. history and especially how it affected the relatives and ancestors whose stories you trace. And one of the key themes that emerges from the book is this idea of the complexity of memory. As you survey old photographs and government documents produced over many years, your understanding of your own family changes, and pretty often for the worst, at least on the face of it. What were some of the discoveries that you made, and how did you manage to accept the kinds of contradictions that you found there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a number of different figures that were close, people that were close to my grandmother, her brother, my her first husband, and then my, my grandfather. I looked at their stories in depth, and they were all involved, we both were all victims of certain kinds of violence during World War II, but were also definitely perpetrators in somewhat surprising ways. One of the people that I was very interested in was my grandmother's first husband, who she'd really never spoken about at all growing up. And I did a lot of archival research, ended up finding documents related to the arrest and deportation of this person. His name was Josep Punko. He was arrested by the Nazis, most likely for petty theft. He, I think, maybe stole a hat or something. 
And under Nazi occupation, it was a zero tolerance environment. So if you were guilty of anything, you were basically sent to a concentration camp. So he was sent to Auschwitz. And then I think he was there for just a month or two and then ended up at Mauthausen where he died pretty quickly. So I found his his death record. And I just even looking through the paperwork, I remember I found it at the Holocaust Museum in DC. And there's one of the few lines that was actually filled in his death record was the next of kin notice, which was listed by grandmother's name. At that point, she was 17. And she she was a widow by that point, but also a mother. They had a child a year previous or so. So that was obviously a very powerful moment for me to uncover that information. But I also did a series of interviews in the village and uncovered the fact that that relationship was likely coerced at best, if not forced. I also found vital records that indicated that my grandmother was pregnant when she married. So she was 15 when she was married to this man who was 28 at the time. Those facts alone, I think, are speak for themselves. Knowing my grandmother, knowing that she was very devout religiously, I can't really imagine anything but the worst, though there's really no explicit confirmation of that. She never spoke of it. But in any case, I think it really, to learn that that was likely part of my grandmother's life was extremely difficult. In some ways, not a huge surprise. Again, just having, as I spoke earlier about the obvious trauma that she experienced that sort of came through in her being to some extent. But it's another thing to learn of this and possibly also maybe to to mourn for her, maybe in a way that she wasn't even able to do for herself. I imagine how guilty she must have felt. I have a totally different education than she had access to. And just to be able to feel for her, like how much she must have been a victim. And my heart aches for her that she had to experience that. And again, in a way, maybe that she wasn't ever ever really able to feel for herself. We'll have more of Griffin's conversation with Megan Buskey in a minute. I'm Ellen Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast, possible. Well, there's a very moving uh, section of the book where you put yourself almost in her shoes and you imagine what it must have been like to be her. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that decision to go on imagining the things that the documents and the photographs couldn't quite tell you that you almost need to use a kind of literary imagination to see what it was like. What Could you talk about maybe what lies behind that that impulse in your writing? Yeah, I think that was a really big impulse in general for the book. You know, I wanted to be able to understand my grandmother's life in as much depth as I possibly could. I guess I could have written a fictional work. That would have been a very different enterprise. But I brought in the engagement with the archives because otherwise I couldn't, wouldn't be able to account for all of the holes. Right, right. So that was sort of a craft choice. But I think that kind of work is, was really central to the endeavor that I was trying to undergo, which was, was that it was an exercise in empathy. It was an exploration of all of the, as full and as possible, an exploration of the depths of my grandmother's experience, my family's experience, broadly speaking. 
Well, I want to ask you a bit about the subtitle of your book. It's the story of exile and return. You almost get a sense of like an oscillation and you're making multiple trips back and forth to Ukraine. And you point out this idea that we tend to think of immigration as a linear thing and as a voluntary thing. But for your family, it was anything but. It was the accidents of history. It was some willfulness and it was cyclical. So could you talk about how your experience researching this story and understanding where your family had come from and where your family remains in Ukraine, how that kind of complicated your idea of immigration itself? It's a great question. I think part of the, the subtitle of the book was really intended to, to showcase exactly that tension that you're pinpointing and to show, too, that like you never really leave a place. You do leave a place, but you pass on like my grandparents or my great-grandparents when they left Ukraine, they obviously stayed very engaged with it on some level. And that their engagement with it birthed in me like a desire to know and to have that connection. And so I think it's certainly in my family, certainly in my own experience, been the case that the family connection has compelled my own connection to grow. But I, it was intentional in the subtitle because it's there, as you, you point out, it is cyclical and I think not clear and it's not linear. And I think we're also seeing that even today in the Ukrainian refugee crisis. And one of the interesting things too that I've observed is that you often think of refugees as like you le they leave the country and they're gone and they're trying to figure out like when do they go back. Actually, for Ukrainians now, there are a lot of refugees that are going in and out of the country. And then they might go back to Ukraine for a holiday, for example, just like not something you would think about a refugee is doing. And then also, too, there's like even longer periods of, in my own family, people who have left, which a number of people have left the country because of the war. They've left, come back to Ukraine for a few months, left again, and then come back. You know, who knows what's going to be happening there over the next year or so. But I suspect that that pattern is going to continue. And it sort of challenges this idea of the linear nature of, of exile or of being a refugee or of emigrating. There's particularly in our world now, there's so much connectivity that's maintained. And there is this ability to, to return, even though you can also leave very easily. You also complicate the story of Ukrainian nationalism. It's not really a kind of linear march towards democracy or towards nationhood. How do you understand Ukraine's place today as a result of what happened during the 20th century? A really important thing for people to understand, and I think it's wonderful how much more awareness there is about Ukraine in general in the world today. But one thing to know is certainly that like this idea of Ukrainian state or Ukrainian independence, this fierceness that we're seeing now in terms of how hard Ukrainians are fighting for their country, this is not something that's just been in play for the past year, for even the past eight years, or even the past 30 years of Ukrainian independence. It's been a very consistent part of Ukraine's identity and sort of manifestation in the world that it's constantly been fighting for its own independence, its own nationhood. And that has certainly been, the, that was certainly the case in the 20th century in terms of the Ukrainian nationalist movement, which fought so, so hard for an independent Ukrainian state that was also ethnically pure in terms of what they wanted to have a Ukrainian state for Ukrainians, at least for large parts of its activity. So in terms of how 
Ukraine has evolved to the point that it is now and how the, that 20th century history has informed where it is now. I think that independence strain has taken various forms, obviously complicated form during World War II, but then during the second half of the 20th century, there was still like a, a Ukrainian identity that persisted even amid the Soviet project. And then as the Soviet Union was falling apart, Ukraine was definitely at the forefront of articulating its own desire for independence from Russia. And it's been certainly an evolution since that point of coming to terms with the Soviet legacy, you know, identifying its own kind of ethos, independent of the Soviet Union, independent of Russia. There's been these gradual shifts that have happened, punctuated by big uprisings, both at the, with the fall of the Soviet Union, with the Orange Revolution in 2004, 2005, and then Euromaidan. So I think there's, you know, a progressive sense of Ukraine as being independent of the Soviet Union. It's also been somewhat aided by, at least that project has been somewhat aided by Russian aggression. I think Russians' incursion into Crimea, its incursion into the Donbass, really cemented a certain segment of Ukrainian society against the Russian state in a way that they were not before. So the place that we're, we're at now is the result of these successive shifts over time, a certain kind of engagement with the ideas of what it means to be a part of Europe. And I think the story of where Ukraine will go is still very much unclear, unfortunately, given this war. Well, I want to turn to some of the photographs that you've taken. And one of them makes its way onto the cover. It's a photo of a young woman on a bus at a bus depot in Ukraine. And it's it's a beautiful bus. It's got pink and white stripes. There are curtains. And the young woman is wearing clothes that seem to match the exterior of the bus. But I'm wondering if you could comment a bit about this photograph. Where did you take it? What does it mean for you? And why did you put it on the cover? Thank you so much for appreciating the photograph, because I really had a lot of affection for it, too, and was really happy that we were able to make it or put it on the cover. So it was a photo that I took during one of my research trips in western Ukraine. I think I was in Sambir, which is a small town in western Ukraine, making my way to see my grandfather. I was actually sitting in a bus that was very similar to hers, except it was blue. <laughs> so I just captured it. And I wanted to put it on the cover for a couple of reasons. One was that I think it it's a very Ukrainian image, but it's also not something that people maybe who don't know much about Ukraine would identify as Ukrainian. I wanted to do something that wasn't blue and yellow. Like, thankfully, now everyone knows the Ukrainian flag is blue and yellow, but wanted, let's take it a step further and get a little bit more familiar with what the landscape, the images, and the faces of the people of this country are like. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to do something that was was very specific, but maybe not as familiar to kind of Western readers. And then the other reason that I really wanted on the cover was I think it also plays very nicely into some of the things that we were talking about when we were talking about the subtitle of the book of this notion of journey, having a young woman in the middle of some sort of process. She's going to from somewhere, she's going to another place. And that I think spoke to not just my, my experience, but also my grandmother's experience, also gestures towards the experience of a lot of Ukrainians now who are living abroad because of the war. You're very attentive as a young person yourself, but also to a, a person who spent multiple decades since your college days going back and forth between Ukraine and the United States. 
Could you talk about young people in Ukraine now and maybe a bit about the resilience that we're seeing? Yeah, I think that there's, I'm close to a number of like younger Ukrainians just through my family. And I think prior to this war happening, I think I felt so happy for them in terms of the lives they were able to have. I think of my cousin's daughters who are 14 and 15 now, and the lives that they have are so much different than the lives of children that were born even 10 or 15 years before them in the sense that they grew up in like a stable, a situation with us where their, their, their family finances were relatively stable. They had access to art classes, dance classes, English language classes from a young age. They were able to travel because Ukraine opened to the Schengen zone, I think five or six years ago, seven years ago. So they've been all over Europe. Their dad just drives them around in his minivan. He's really into long distance driving, but he's taken them to like, they're much more well-traveled than I am in Europe. And so they have this like kind of cosmopolitanism and with the internet, they have access to so many different kinds of information for better or worse, but I think for better in a lot of ways. And so I, I still have such tremendous love and belief in their potential, but it's also very difficult to see, to think about. And who knows, you know, this, there's a big question of what Ukraine is going to be like after this war, when this war will be over and under what circumstances. But it's very difficult to think about all of that promise in this young generation of Ukrainians and juxtaposing that with a state that's very busy with some very basic questions of infrastructure and safety, security, it's going to be consumed by those things, certainly whenever this, this terrible war ends. And that must compromise to some extent what their options might be. There's also a lot of, um, you know, sort of some limitations can lead to ingeniousness and, and creativity. And so I, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to end on a negative note, I still think that there is so much that Ukraine has in its young people and its old people even. Mm -hmm. And the country has been so hugely resilient. And certainly, you know, as the title of my book is like, Ukraine is not dead yet. And it's not by a long shot. Megan, thanks so much for coming and for having this conversation. Thank you, Griffin. Megan Buskey's new book, Ukraine is Not Dead Yet, is available now from Columbia University Press. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.